This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Stanley Park is a green oasis in the midst of the urban landscape of Vancouver, Canada. The 400-hectare rainforest boasts scenic views of the ocean and mountains. The seawall that circles the park provides access to beautiful beaches. The trails inside the park meander past local wildlife and historical landmarks. It is considered the crown jewel of Vancouver. With the densely populated West End neighborhood on one side of the park and the shores of the Pacific Ocean on the other, the park is a favorite for tourists and locals alike. But at night, the park has secrets. It was in the early morning hours of Saturday, November 17, 2001, that the naked body of a man was found in the park. He was beaten, bloodied, and barely clinging to life. He would not survive. The fallout of this case would outrage a community, thrust a justice system into the court of public opinion, and test the definitions of Canadian hate crime laws. This is the murder of Aaron Webster, and this is True North True Crime. Hello and welcome back to True North True Crime. I'm Graham. And I'm Caitlin. And today we're going to be talking about the murder of Aaron Webster. This crime deeply affected the community and neighborhood that Graham and I currently live in. Yeah, I actually remember the day it happened. I was working at an LGBTQ-owned business at the time, and I was working the breakfast shift when the news came in. I still remember feeling scared walking alone down the streets of the neighborhood uh, for a while after that. We want to start off by saying that we are a straight, cisgender couple, and as allies, we know we cannot speak for the experience of the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, so we wanted to make sure we included more LGBTQ plus voices, so we reached out to prominent members of the community to help us tell this story. We will also be including articles from DailyExtra.com that covered the story. For those that don't know, DailyExtra.com is a news outlet that serves Canada's LGBTQ plus community. So this case takes place in Vancouver, which is our hometown. Vancouver is the largest city on the west coast of Canada with about 700,000 people calling it home. There are about 2 million people in the greater Vancouver area, and it's considered friendly, safe, and a beautiful city. And in the heart of the downtown is a neighborhood called the West End. The West End is a very densely populated part of the city with about 50,000 people packed onto a small two-kilometer peninsula. The area has a very diverse mixture of cultures, ages, and economic backgrounds. The Davy Village is often considered the center of the West End and is home to Western Canada's largest LGBTQ community. It is very similar to the Castro District in San Francisco for those who have been there. Walking through the Davy Village, you can see rainbow crosswalks, LGBTQ-owned businesses, and plaques and plazas dedicated to human rights pioneers. Every year in August, the neighborhood hosts one of the largest pride parades in the world. Hundreds of years before the Davy Village existed, the two-spirited populations of Canada's indigenous communities were celebrated on this land. The history of the LGBTQ plus movement in Vancouver dates back to the 30s. According to the Really Gay History Tour, 
One of the first gay hangouts was the beer parlor in the Hotel Vancouver, which opened in 1938. But the fight for equal rights has been challenging. Same-sexual relationships in Canada were illegal up until 1969. In Vancouver, there are horror stories of police raids on gay establishments, terror bombings at gay businesses, and other untold stories of violence and discrimination. However, by 2001, the West End and Vancouver would seemingly become a safer and more supportive place for people to live and love how they wanted. And it's with this backdrop that we introduce you to Aaron Webster. Getting details about Aaron Webster was not easy. There's not a lot of information publicly available about him. However, we did reach out to people in the community who knew him, as well as combing through articles and any digital footprint we could find. We were also lucky enough to be in contact with the family spokesperson, Denise Norman, but we weren't able to interview her in time to record this episode. So we're hoping we can release another episode, a part two for Aaron's story, with Denise involved. So who was Aaron Webster? Aaron Webster was a 41-year-old photographer living in Vancouver. He was a peaceful, loving, and kind human being. Family members described him as warm and wonderful and a person who it would have been a privilege to know. He was also generous of spirit and served as the president of the City View Cooperative Housing Community. His friend Tim Chisholm states, He was a fun-loving guy, very talented, very personable. He liked to have a good time, but he was also very empathetic towards people. Early on in the evening of November 16, 2001, Aaron joined his friend Tim Chisholm, another photographer, for a drink. It is rumored that they met up at the Dufferin Pub, a gay-owned establishment outside of the Davie Village. We say rumored because, like I said, I was working in the village at the time, and that's what the word on the street was. Right. So later in the evening, Aaron let Tim know that he intended to head into Stanley Park. It is known that the park has an area where gay men go to have anonymous hookups. Tim was also going to head into the park later that night to watch a meteor shower. Now, whether the two were using a friend system as a safety net isn't clear, but it is clear that at least one person knew where Aaron would be. So Aaron headed off into the park, and Tim stayed behind at the bar. In the early morning hours of Saturday, November 17th, Aaron stood at the entrance to a trail smoking a cigarette. He was naked, except for his hiking boots. A voice was heard saying, There he is! Suddenly, five men armed with baseball bats, pool cues, and a golf club came out of the bushes and locked eyes with Aaron. There was a tense moment, a moment that things could have stopped, a moment that things could have gone in a different direction. But then one of them yelled, Get him! Aaron began running for his car. The men chased him. They hit him on the legs and back to slow him down. Aaron yelled, That's enough, guys! As Aaron made it to the driver's side of his car, one of the men cut him off. He was boxed in with no escape as they continued the attack. One of the men squared off with Aaron and yelled, What the fuck are you doing naked? And delivered a two-handed swing of his weapon to Aaron's head, dropping him to the ground. From that moment on, Aaron no longer moved. They continued savagely attacking Aaron until they were scared off by an approaching car. In all, Aaron would sustain 14 visible wounds in the attack. A couple who had been out for the evening, Michelle Richmond and Frederico Angulo, were driving through Stanley Park early that morning. As they approached the entrance to the parking lot, they saw a man wearing no shirt standing facing another man. As their headlights lit the scene, they saw a man in a black baseball cap bring a bat-like weapon down on the head of the shirtless man. The shirtless man fell to the ground. 
Richmond and Angulo said they saw two or three others standing nearby on the same side of the car. They also stated that they saw a blue jeep parked in a nearby stall. They called 911 and waited for the police. Meanwhile, Tim Chisholm, Aaron's friend, who had been with him earlier that evening, was also in the park. Tim heard noises at the end of the parking lot and drove his white Ford club wagon slowly along until he came across the naked body of a man lying beside a car. He exited his vehicle and ran over to the man. Now, Tim didn't even know this was his friend until he moved the man's arm, revealing Aaron's face. He too called 911 and attempted to resuscitate Aaron. Aaron Webster's brutally beaten body convulsed in Tim's arms, his neck thickly swollen, his lips flecked with blood. The cause of death was a torn artery in the neck, which is often quickly fatal. As police and paramedics attended the scene, a blue jeep slowly passed by on the road leading out of the park. Inside that jeep were five men who had just committed murder. It would take authorities over a year to make an arrest. The impact on the LGBTQ plus community was immediate and visceral. Some of you may remember that just three years earlier in 1998, Matthew Shepard was murdered in a hate crime in Wyoming. We want to directly quote from a powerful article written by Robin Perel, the former editorial director at DailyExtra.com. Here is a portion from the 2011 article titled, The Murder That Changed Us. News spread quickly of a gay man's murder in Stanley Park. Murray Billida was at Mel Rich's coffeehouse when he heard, quote, It was first thing Saturday morning, and I was there having my breakfast sandwich, and I opened the paper, and there was the story. He couldn't believe this could still happen in 2001, in a city that was supposed to be safe for gay people. He knew instantly that it was a gay bashing. Gay men have been cruising on those trails for a hundred years, he says. If a violent attack occurred in that space, it was likely deliberately perpetrated. The brutality and the senselessness of the attack against one of his own pushed Billida into action. Quote, I picked up my newspaper and walked out the back door and into the Little Sisters bookstore. There he found bookstore's co-owner and veteran community activist, Jim Diva. Quote, Can you fucking believe this? He asked Diva. Quote, Somebody needs to do something about this. And Jim, in his wise, succinct way, said... Well, then you better get busy, mister. And that was it. I went home and I got to work, says Billida, who organized the following day's historic march down Davy Street in less than five hours. When Billida returned to Little Sister's back parking lot at 1 p.m. on Sunday, November 18th, he was dismayed to only find around 100 people milling about. Then he saw the crowd gathered on Davy Street. Davy Street was closed, essentially. There were so many people in the street. It was affirming that we are a community, Billida says that I am not alone in my outrage. This is in fact shared grief and shared resolve. I think it's fair to say that every gay man in Vancouver, the thought went through their mind. This could have been me. It just hit people in the gut, said filmmaker Erilyn Weissman. It was really shocking. I remember thinking we were beyond the reach of this kind of violence and then thinking, well, maybe we're not. I just happened to be right at the front of the march, says Jonathan Byers. I remember getting to the bottom of the hill and wondering how many of us there were, and I turned around and all of Davy Street was a mass of people marching, and still people coming over the hill. I was just amazed. I ended up crying the rest of the way. It was very, very moving. What stands out for Weissman was the silence. Quote, There were several thousand people walking down Davy Street, and it was silent. 
that silence was incredibly powerful. This day would be the start of multiple protests, marches, and vigils in the wake of Aaron's murder. The investigation into the crime would prove to be a challenging one. Despite the attempted code of silence by the perpetrators, an arrest in the case would finally come in February of 2003. More than a year after the murder, police would arrest and charge a youth for killing Aaron Webster. This would create a domino effect, with one more juvenile and two adult males being charged with the murder. The juveniles cannot be named because they were 17 at the time of the crime, but they are referred to in court documents as A.C. and J.S. The two adult males were Danny Rayow and Ryan Cran. I do want to point out that another man, Daniel Rayow, Danny's brother was also present that night, but he was never arrested or charged. The two youths would plead guilty in juvenile court and testify for the prosecution. Danny Rayow and Ryan Cram would plead not guilty and go to trial together in adult court. Documents from the youth trial are under a publication ban, but their testimonies would come up in the rayow Cran adult trial. So let's get into the trial, the sentencing, and the controversy over hate crime designation after a quick break. And we are back. Okay, so we need to set the table here for the trials. Yeah, so there was essentially three trials here. The two juveniles had their own separate sentencing, and then they testified against Rayow and Cran, who had their own trial together. So on December 18, 2003, for one of the juveniles, Youth Court Judge Valmont Romilly rules the attack was motivated by hatred, calls it a gay bashing, and designates it a hate crime. This is very important. He sentences the first youth to three years, the maximum sentence a youth can get for manslaughter. The youth is to spend two years in a youth detention center and the last year at home under strict conditions. And then on April 21st, 2004, for the other juvenile, youth court judge Jody Warrior sentences the second youth to three years. Though she hands him the maximum sentence as well, she does not designate this killing a hate crime. So we have two people convicted and sentenced. One is called a hate crime and the other is not. The same crime, two different judges, two different juveniles. And then on November 15, 2004, the Danny Rayo and Ryan Cran trial would begin. The testimony of these two youths plus witness statements, informant testimony, and medical experts would make up the bulk of the case against Rayow and Cran. However, even though the juveniles were testifying against Rayow and Cran, the lawyers for Rayow and Cran would use the, and this is just my opinion, willfully confusing testimony of the youths plus misleading and deflective wording in what people call the, quote, peeping Tom defense. Now, Graham, what is the peeping Tom defense, you might ask? Well, the accused would use the term peeping toms to deflect from saying gay men. It would be said over and over again during the trial. They would testify that they had gone into Stanley Park with weapons to a well-known place where gay men would hang out to, well, hunt peeping toms, meaning men who watch couples make out in cars, not meaning gay men because that would be a hate crime. The accused knew exactly why they went into the park that night. They were looking for gay men. But their lawyers knew if they used the opaque dog whistle term, peeping toms, with a straight face, that they could create enough confusion that maybe they would get away with a hate crime. In fact, Greg Bazian, a man attending the trial, wore a shirt that said, quote, 
I'm gay, not a peeping Tom. So, would the peeping Tom defense work? Well, let's jump into the trial. Okay, so AC and JS struck a deal with the prosecution, and they were the prosecution's star witnesses against Ray Allen Cran. But their written statements didn't match their sworn testimony, and it created a whole bunch of confusion for the prosecution. J.S. testified that he, Ryan Cran, the Rayel brothers, and A.C. decided to go to Stanley Park. J.S. said he understood that they were going to Stanley Park to fight those peeping Tom people. He said that he, Cran, and A.C. had gone to Stanley Park before, would wait until someone came and looked in their windows, and then they would get out and kick and punch them. He described the peeping Toms as voyeurs who would watch people having sex. He testified that they all got into Ryan Cran's Jeep and drove to Stanley Park. He said Cran opened up the trunk and began handing out weapons, bats, and possibly a pool cue. He testified that he and A.C. were wearing black baseball caps. That's important. Please remember that. J.S. said each person had a weapon, although he does not recall what Cran had. J.S. had a large aluminum bat. Danny Rayow had a bat. A.C. had a bat. He said he didn't remember Daniel Rayow having a bat. Now, keep in mind that Daniel Rayow is Danny's brother. He didn't get charged. Nobody knows why. But they walked along the trail to the bushes and hid, squatting behind a tree. And although nothing was discussed, he understood the purpose was to find these, quote, peeping Tom people. J.S. then states that a naked man came out of nowhere smoking. They sat there and stared for a few seconds. Then someone said, get him. They chased the man. J.S. caught up first and swung his bat at him. He does not remember clearly where anybody else was during the chase. The man turned and said, that's enough, guys, and kept running. They chased him to his car. The man ran to the driver's side, and J.S. went around the right side. J.S. said when he came around the front of the car, the man was already on the ground face up. He does not recall Cran swinging. A.C. and Danny Rayow were on the left side of the body, respectively swinging at him while he was on the ground. J.S. ran into the bushes. So did Cran. A.C. and Danny Rayow continued to hit the body for about 10 seconds. During cross-examination, the defense team took J.S. to task and dismantled his testimony and written statements. In cross, he admitted it is a possibility he himself delivered the overhand blow that sent Aaron Webster to the ground, and it's possible that he killed Aaron Webster. He also said he could not remember who struck the blow that sent Aaron Webster to the ground. He also said that Danny Rayow struck Aaron Webster repeatedly while he was on the ground, seven times to be exact. But in cross... He said that he could not remember. He then said on cross that he never saw Cran hit Aaron Webster. So he is now both implicated and cleared Rayow and Cran with his own words. Yeah, yeah. And I honestly think that this was on purpose. Yeah, so at this point, they're just saying all of this to be confusing and, and point their fingers in every direction at yeah. each other. And keep in mind, the youths have sworn written statements mm-hmm. as well as their testimony in their juvenile trial and now this testimony and the cross-examination, and they've said different things. Okay. So let's get into what AC had to say. So AC took the stand, and this is the other youth. He states that earlier that night, Cran suggested they go see if, quote, that guy is there, and they went to Stanley Park. AC said Ryan Cran opened the trunk and they began grabbing weapons. They saw a guy standing behind a tree. Someone said, there he is, and they began running. The man ran. The man was naked. J.S. caught up to the man first and hit him in the stomach. A.C. caught up and swung at him below his left knee. Cran caught up behind the guy and hit him. 
Danny Rayow swung at the stomach and at the right side. None of these actions had any effect on the man who kept running to his car. At the car, Cran, J.S., and Danny Rayow went around the front. The man was facing the other three. A.C. came up behind the man and hit his upper back and shoulder blades. The man said, that's enough, guys, and turned back. J.S. hit him with a two-handed sideswipe to the jaw. The man fell backwards into his car and onto the ground and lay there not moving. So now A.C. is now pointing the finger directly at J.S., Mm -hmm. the two youths who've already been convicted and sentenced. To their maximum sentence. Three years. Yeah. So A.C., Danny Rayow, and J.S. were standing over him, and J.S. hit him one more time in the chest, and then they ran into the bushes. Cran was gone by that point, is what A.C. says. And A.C. saw a car coming down the street, hit the man one more time in the knee, and ran. Why in the knee? It's a lie. They're just minimizing. He turned and saw Danny Rayow hit the man twice in the chest, and then come to them in the bushes. They all went back to the vehicle, and they drove past the crime scene. And that's when they saw the ambulance and cop cars, and they were giving CPR to Aaron Webster. It's gross. Now, this is interesting, because on the way back home or wherever they were going, Danny Rayow asked J.S., why did he do it? And J.S. did not respond. So we're pointing the finger back at J.S. Mm-hmm. About a month later, J.S. and Danny Rayow and two girls drove past Second Beach, where Aaron died. And Danny Rayow got irritated with one of the girls. And he said, keep talking and you're going to end up dead like that guy. The defense had an easy time dismantling A.C.'s testimony. His earlier statements to the police and his pretrial accounts had major inconsistencies with his testimony. Yeah, these kids were not criminal masterminds. I mean, they were 17 years old and idiots. Yeah. He also stated on the stand that in his first statement to police, he had made up random hits to save his own skin. Yeah, so what that was was I think that he just kept on, uh, they would show him bruising and stuff and say, who did this, who did that? And he just started saying, oh, Ryan Ryan hit him on the shoulder. Um, uh, J.S. hit him there. And they they were just, he was making up a narrative because he was trying to... Save his own ass. Yeah, he didn't want to hate crime. Right. However, now he said he has already been sentenced, so he doesn't need to minimize his involvement. Right. So the star witnesses are falling apart, and so is the prosecution's case. Let's find out what happens next in the conclusion of the trial after this quick break. And we are back. Okay, so keep in mind that this case is against Ray Owen Grant. And the two juveniles are inconsistently pointing fingers in every direction and being pummeled by the defense. So the prosecution calls three more witnesses to the stand. Lance Ruddick took the stand first. Lance had gone to high school with Cran and later worked at a Burnaby pool hall called Q-Zone that Cran liked to frequent. Now, for Lance's testimony on the stand, I'm going to quote from a Daily Extra article. In his most vivid recollection... Ruddick told the court about the time Cran walked into the pool hall seeming a little intoxicated. Quote, He placed his keys on the table, pulled up a chair to the front of the counter of the customer service area, and used the words, Lance, we lynched this guy. We lynched him. Then he mentioned Stanley Park. Lance, we lynched a guy. We lynched a guy. We beat this guy up, Ruddick repeated, bolstering the credibility of the convicted youth's earlier testimony. Okay, so we have corroboration. 
So Cran was also convinced that he was being monitored by the police. Twice, he asked Ruddock if any officers had approached him with questions. Twice, he urged Ruddock to pretend he didn't know him if the questions came up. Yeah, and these guys are like wannabe gangsters, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, uh, yeah, I did this thing. I lynched these guys. Yo, don't talk to the cops. So when the cops finally did approach Ruddock, he agreed to become their agent and wear a recording device to try and catch Cran in another confession. He got a chance a few months later when Cran invited him over to admire his Jeep. He and Rayal were installing low glows under the vehicle. Can we just stop there and talk about the fact that these guys had low glows under their Jeep in 2004 or 2003? Like, that's who these guys are. Peak douchebag. So they said they wanted to take their Jeep with low glows. Yeah. Down, <laughs> downtown to show it off. Oh, God. Sorry. This is like, it's getting douchier. Yeah, but that was back in the days when I people know. used to drive their cars up and down Robson Street. Mm-hmm. Like, that was the cool thing to do. Yeah. Rayow then allegedly said something like, quote, we shouldn't make another trip like the last one we made downtown. Then John Morgado took the stand. And we are going to again, quote, from the Daily Extra article written by Robin Perel, quote, he said Cran confessed to him, too. He, too, worked at Q-Zone. Popular place. He, too, told the court about a conversation he had there with Cran after Webster was killed. So Cran talks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Quote, I asked him, was that you, Morgado testified? And he said, yeah, it was us. Cran then supplied a few details. He said they parked, found a guy naked, and started beating him. He also told Morgado not to say anything if anyone came to Q-Zone looking for him or asking about any pool cues. So it yeah. sounds like he stole the cue. Yeah, and that's there's an, there's another piece of the evidence, too, um, which we did brush over, and is that there was a broken pool cue found nearby. At the crime scene. Yeah, but these guys are all talking about bats the whole time, and this is the only time pool cue comes up. Mm, okay. Morgado then explained to the court what had prompted him to ask Cran if he was involved in the first place when he had heard about Webster's killing in Stanley Park. It, quote, got me thinking about the times I'd been asked to go down there. It turns out, Cran had allegedly invited Morgado on several earlier occasions to join him and his friends for excursions to Stanley Park. Cran said that they were going there to drink and party and look for peeping toms. Did Cran say what he would do if he found any peeping toms, the prosecutor asked? Quote, beat them up. Morgado answered in his slow and deliberate way. Did you take him up on his offer? The prosecutor asked. Quote, never. It's just not something that I like to do. Okay, so Morgado was a solid witness for the prosecution and apparently a little arrogant. Listen to how he shut down the defense on cross-examination. Again, quoting from a Daily Extra article. Then the cross-examination began. The defense first tried to shake Morgado's recollection of Cran's earlier invitations. It could have just been to drink and party at Stanley Park, couldn't it? Defense asked. Morgado replied, Well, if it was just drinking and partying, I would have gone. It was the it was what he added that threw me off. I like this witness. You can infer here that, quote, what he added means beating and killing innocent gay men. That's something that John Morgado wasn't interested in. He was very specific about, yeah, I can drink a party, but I don't want to go there to beat people up. Yeah. Okay, so finally a third man, Cole Bunk, would testify. And this is strange. His account was suspiciously vague. Something about a conversation at a bus stop. It turns out later that Danny Rayo had threatened him before the trial. 
And later, Rayow would be convicted of threatening that witness. Oh, boy. So they're threatening witnesses now. Not surprising. And with that, now we come to the verdict and the sentencing. This has been an incredibly difficult story to tell, and when you hear what happens next, you're going to know why. On December 10, 2004, the Honorable Madam Justice Humphreys would rule as follows. There is no other conclusion to be drawn than that Cran would know that participation in a beating in all of these circumstances would result in bodily harm that was not trivial. It does not matter that Mr. Cran may not have intended the death of Mr. Webster. Mr. Webster died from the beating in which Ryan Cran participated. I find Ryan Cran guilty of the manslaughter of Aaron Webster. So, Crown is found guilty of manslaughter with no hate crime designation. And just manslaughter? <laughs> just manslaughter, not second degree. Or premeditated, for that matter. Yeah. And then she ruled on Danny Rayow. On a consideration of all the evidence, I am unable to find that the Crown has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Danny Rayow participated as a principal, an aider, or an abetter in the manslaughter of Aaron Webster. And I must find him not guilty. What the fuck? Like, honestly. I just... I, I, there's truly no words to describe the amount of rage this fills me with. It's unbelievable. At sentencing, on February 8, 2005, Judge Humphreys would state the following. I am aware that the death of Aaron Webster has had a significant effect on the gay community. However, there was no evidence before the court that Mr. Webster's sexual orientation had anything to do with the crime. Taking into account all factors and circumstances, including time served in custody, I sentenced Mr. Cran to a period of incarceration of six years. Six years. So we have two juveniles released after just two years. Yeah. One man acquitted entirely. Not even charged. And one man serving six years for manslaughter. I know what you're thinking. Well, at least Ryan Cran served his time. Nope. Ryan applied for parole on April 3rd of 2007. After serving two years of his sentence, he was denied as he had been caught drinking vodka in his minimum security prison. However, Cran was paroled on February 5th, 2009, three days short of four years served. And you wonder why people protest. Denise Norman, spokesperson for the Webster family, stood at the courthouse and said, he should be in jail for 25 years. He's killed somebody. He's getting out a young man, and he'll be in his mid-20s. He doesn't even have a curfew. He can go have a party tonight with the other guys who killed Aaron if he wants. Our sentence is a life sentence. In the aftermath of the Webster murder, some change did occur. In 2010, two different gay-bashing trials commenced just months apart, and they both resulted in hate crime convictions. Both crimes involved straight men violently targeting gay men in the West End. In both of those cases, the hate crime designation given to the youth in Aaron's case was influential in making sure that these two got a hate crime designation. Aaron Webster's legacy lives on in other ways, too. The housing co-op Aaron was the president of is now named in his honor. There's a scholarship in his name funded by the Cooperative Housing Federation of British Columbia. In 2008, the city of Vancouver launched the Aaron Webster Anti-Violence Project, 
There have been many other fundraisers and events in Aaron's name. I think there was even a triathlon. Mm -hmm. And if you're ever in Stanley Park, we encourage you to find the bench and shelter built in memory of Aaron. The plaque on the bench reads, Beloved son, partner, friend, gone but not forgotten. Photography was his passion, spirituality his life. Here he died, and may tolerance and respect live. And I just want to say that Kate and I walked by this bench a few weeks ago, and that's what really inspired us to tell Aaron's story. Yeah, this park is very special to both of us, and this, this story touched us both as well. We reached out to some prominent members of the Vancouver LGBTQ plus community for comment about their experience of life in the aftermath of Aaron's murder. Actor and speaker David C. Jones said this, One of the things that truly horrified me and left me shook was the fact that these men went out hunting. They were so full of their own bravado and macho bullshit that they thought, let's go get a baseball bat and go bash some gays. They got caught up in their hate and murdered someone, and that terrified me. But at the march down Davy Street, it felt like safety when I was feeling very unsafe. Kim Barsanti, a talent agent in Vancouver, has this to share. I guess all I can say about the Aaron Webster murder was that it obviously affected me as a queer woman much differently than queer men. I did not have the same inherent fear of homophobic bashings as the men did. What I can tell you is the extreme sadness and fear that rippled through the community. It was at a time when AIDS had finally stopped completely ravaging our community. The Aaron Webster case brought us together as a community to speak out against the injustice and homophobia that still lived in our very own community. People gathered in groups instead of alone out of fear and solidarity. Once again, our community came together to share in a common goal, to fight for the enforcement of legislation regarding hate crimes. Michael Venus, founder of the artist collective House of Venus and executive director of Never Apart, remembers. The murder of Aaron Webster shook our community in Vancouver where it happened, but also around the country and the globe. It was so scary as it was so close to home and made LGBTQ folks realize it could happen to them. Being an out queer person who has dealt with homophobia and gay bashers my entire life, this was especially horrible and frightening. And lastly, Spencer Chandra Herbert, an amazing human and the elected MLA for the West End, gave us this powerful statement. Aaron Webster's murder reminded us then, and still reminds us today, that we are vulnerable to hate and that hate kills. Hate targets difference. Hate targets the other. Hate wins when we go silent. His murder brought us together in tears and rage. It brought us together to cry and shout but also to organize and push for changes to hate crimes legislation and prosecutions, to push for change so no one else would die the way Aaron did. I never knew Aaron Webster, but I've met many of his friends and family over the years. He was a good man who was murdered because he was gay in a community many had assumed was safe. If he could be murdered, we all could be. No one is safe from hate. It perverts the mind to think someone is above another. It kills our connections and makes us monsters. As the late Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So I try to focus on love to defeat hate. And I truly believe love will win in the end. It must. 
Rest in peace, Aaron Webster. Your death was not in vain. You are remembered, and many of us are still working in your memory. If you feel moved by this episode, we hope you will donate to an LGBTQ plus cause in your area, or we'll link to some on the episode notes of this episode. Or you can donate to the CHFBC Aaron Webster Scholarship Fund, which provides access to education for students living in cooperative housing. We'll link that as well in the show notes. So that wraps up Aaron's murder. Yeah, this was a really intense case for us to cover because, again, like you know, this took place in our neighborhood. Um, I was at the march down Davy Street in 2001. We spent a lot of time in Stanley Park and we walked by Aaron's bench. And we just thought it was a very important story that needed to be told because this story has fallen out of the news. It was, you know, 19 years ago, but it's still an important story. Yeah, especially in the climate that we're currently in right now. Yeah, and this is actually Pride Month. This is Mm -hmm. Global Pride Month. So happy Pride, everyone, and, like, take care of the people that you love and love who you love. Mm -hmm. And definitely reach out and let us know what you thought of this case. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast for upcoming episodes. And again, we hate to ask. But those five-star ratings really do help with our visibility. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TNTCPod. That's at TNTCPod. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for Episode 2 of True North True Crime. Yeah, and for Episode 3, we're actually traveling to Campbell River, British Columbia, to interview the family and friends of a missing person. So we're working on an active missing person case for you guys for Episode 3. Stay safe, everyone. (laughs) 